Now entering Nerdist.com. This week's Nerdist Writers panel is sponsored by Future States. Produced by ITVS and available online for free at futurestates.tv. Future States is a -a one-of-a-kind web series told through an immersive website that was designed by interactive studio Murmur. Featuring eight sci-fi films that occur in one futuristic story world, Future States TV is a unique meditation on the impact of technology on education, employment, healthcare, incarceration, and more. This season's stories come from indie filmmakers Greg Pak, who did the great Planet Hulk and Batman Superman arcs, Alex Rivera, who's behind Sleep Dealer, Nisha Ganatra, who made Chutney Popcorn, and more. The creators and producers of Future States are huge fans of the Nerdist Writers Panel and are honored to sponsor this week's podcast. Oh, that's flattering, guys. Visit futurestates.tv to check it out. And do check it out. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel and it's hosted by Ben Blecker where he gets a bunch of writers and he asks them lots of questions and it's starting now so this will be the end of the theme. Uh, Will, thank you for being here. I guess they both have 1K. but He is the director and co-writer of The Signal, which comes out Tuesday. Uh, go. Friday the 13th. That's what's like. Is it? That what it is? Yeah, Friday the 13th. Nice. Did you um, rush to make that date? I did not. I did not <laughs> rush to make that date. I don't even know how we landed. I think it just is sort of luck that we landed on Friday the That's 13th. That's really funny. Yeah. So, um, um, we should tell people what The Signal is, why they should go see it. Let's get this promotional part out of the way, and then we yeah. can talk about how it all came together and your writing background and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me first. Um, Stoked to be here in this crazy room, which you guys can't see, but it is very crazy. We're at like this little redwood uh, (laughs) octagonal concrete encased room with a soft godfather light above us. Exactly. And and soundproofed walls that aren't actually soundproof, but they look like they should be soundproof. So very, very strange. People Um, love on a podcast when you talk about things they can't see. So (laughs) I think we're doing this right. I think it is like, this is the (laughs) setting, This is the atmosphere. Um, No, all right. So The Signal comes out Friday the 13th, uh, June 13th. Um, It is uh, a story about three kids who are on a road trip who disappear in the Southwest, and they wake up in some strange place, sort of a government, maybe some kind of facility, Um, And all these people are in hazmat suits, and they tell them, look, we believe that you encountered something strange, and we can't explain it, and we need your help remembering what happened to you. And from there, shit gets crazy. The fallout from there. Yeah. Um, Speaking of atmosphere, this was a... a, There was a really interesting tone in this movie, um, which I feel like... It didn't. It didn't need to be there. It felt like that's something that you brought to this film. Uh, you know, it would have been very easy to to go a different route. It would have been very easy to go either cheap scares or you know get laughs out of it. But there was a really cool tone about the movie, which I enjoyed. Um, what did? This is only vaguely related, but what did the beginnings of this story look like for you? You're you're you co-wrote the script. Uh, with two other people, right? Yeah, co-wrote it with David Frigerio and my brother Carlisle mm-hmm. Eubank. So, good guys. Um, so, how did the story start to come together, and how did you decide this was? You know, you you had done one other film, right? Uh, was that a feature length film? Yeah, Love. I know, which I have not seen. Sure, sure, it's uh, on Netflix. Good. Oh, good. Okay. Love is on Netflix. You can check it out. <laughs> Love is on Netflix. <laughs> um, so you had done this, but what made the signal the story that you wanted to tell next? 
Or was it even? Was it just the one that happened next? No, I mean, there's always a lot of, like, filmmaking, especially when you're starting out, is full of all these strange, like, you're, you're climbing a ladder, really. So you're constantly trying to figure out how do you get your stuff financed, you know? And that, that is a big part of it. And, and Finishing Love, which is sort of a, almost like a visual poem, it's, it's feature length, but it, it's a very different type of film. Mm-hmm. It's about a guy who gets left in space for seven years and has a lot of time to think about things. Um, it's, it's, you know, I knew that that film wasn't exactly mainstream by any means. And you start thinking about like, okay, how do I get, how do I use this to then get to my next film? And the next one has to be more narratively driven and, mm-hmm. and all these other sort of pieces. Because it's about, down the line, it's about making things easier to make. I would imagine. Right. So the more mainstream it is, maybe it's a little easier to make the next one. Yeah, it's just, yeah, the more mainstream the script is, the story is, the pitch is, sure. the easier it is to then get the financing to make that movie. And there's a version, without giving anything away about this film, there was a version of this film that was even more contained than the current one, hmm. where when they... Um, I was about to start doing sign language and (laughs) try to say something without saying something, but I can't do that. So, uh, but there was a shorter, not a shorter version, but a version of this film that ended a little differently, Mm -hmm. got to the same ending, but would have ended earlier. And, Uh um, and I'm guessing if you kind of think about where that would be, that that's where, um, so, uh, yeah, basically David Fajario and I had started sort of hashing around ideas and my brother and. And we came to this uh, um, uh, sort of bigger idea, this sort of like Twilight Zone thing that we wanted to to jump into, and um, and I, I can't remember what I had just watched. I think I had watched Catfish recently, and I was like super interested in like that film and I was a little bummed out that it wasn't like super like when they got to that house that crazy shit didn't go down and mm-hmm. just ended up being some weird like Facebook lady <laughs> and I was a little like bummed out by that yeah. so I was like I want to make the version of this film that gets nuts that when they approach cool. that house crazy shit goes down and and um you know so those people ended ended up populating my story and there was other mm-hmm. stories from like my childhood that kind of influenced who the characters were going to be. I don't want to... Like what? Um, well, if I say this, it's going to kind of give away the movie. So You can do yeah. it. All right, well... You can be elliptical, and we can always yeah, cut stuff out. Yeah, Fire in the Sky okay. always, like, greatly affected mm-hmm. me. And I was just... I, I haven't watched it recently, but I remember as a yeah. kid, like, having a hard time watching that film. Interesting. And... Um, and it was funny, because somebody yesterday tweeted that they thought that this film was a, a mixture of... It was like Fire in the Sky had a baby with Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and I found that really interesting because I am actually <laughs> a big fan of Dragon Ball Z. I'm a huge fan of anime, which is sort of what leads into some of my oh, stuff. Interesting. But um and when I say a huge fan, that doesn't mean I know every anime thing. I just sure. I'm like a fan of like sort of the action things of mm-hmm. certain anime Evangelion and um Akira obviously and Miyazaki, which doesn't exactly fit into this film, mm-hmm. but um, That's interesting. And Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, well, we can get into that later. So that's more into the technical. But um, there's a reason I like anime, especially for like indie dramas. Really? Or indie action, excuse me, indie action. But, what is that? Well, I feel like anime is like a really cool. Anime is like a really great 
thing to steal from if you're trying to figure out how to do low budget action because they draw the frames extremely lean because they don't they don't have like a million frames going on like they don't have like they'll draw a frame and then they'll sort of try to figure out a way to visually amplify that frame in anime for action and and they they go lean and whereas uh like in filmmaking if you're doing a big action thing, you usually have a lot of cameras and you have a lot of angles and you do a lot of takes. Mm-hmm. Or if you can't do a lot of takes, you can have a lot of cameras. In indie filmmaking, you don't have either. So anime is a good thing to study to figure out, like, all right, how can I sort of approach this from a more, like, like shot-by-shot basis mm-hmm. and, and try to amplify what little I am going to see, yeah. which is why a lot of people are like, oh, he's, he's like, he does all this slow-mo. Is he the slow-mo guy? Is he the... The J.J. Abram flair guy, but for slow mo, <laughs> and that's not me. Like it's I'm practical. not. Yeah, I'm just doing it because it it sort of helps the action still be emotional. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have much money to like fill the, the gaps with a lot of stuff going on, slow mo creates drama that can fill the screen with the same sort of emotion, but for less money. Sure. That's really interesting. Um, and I feel like anime is like yeah hasn't really even been fully tapped into for that ability of like lean action yet. And I think mm. you know movies like Scott Pilgrim obviously they they get into a lot of crazy stuff with them, but um, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm yeah. more talking about the pacing mm-hmm. and sort of stealing from the way that they line the shots up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it seems like it, it's a it's trying to get the most action out of the fewest frames. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's really an interesting approach to it, and it it does make your action scenes look different from yeah. traditional action scenes, even if it is just practical. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, you had to do these things because you're working on such a small budget. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it works. That's really neat. I don't even know how we got into that, but somehow we got, <laughs> <laughs> somehow we um, went down that rabbit hole. Well, and it seems to me. I mean, it kind of introduces this idea that I wanted to talk about, which is it seems, you know, I you have a long list of credits as a cinematographer, as a director of photography and things like that, um, that you seem to be very visually influenced. Um, so when you're sitting down to write a story, to come up with the story of this script with your collaborators, how does that work? Um there's a lot of yelling at each other and there's a lot of well, throwing brother, things. So. Yeah. No, it's very collaborative in a cool way. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, my first movie I wrote by myself, but I wrote it while I was building the space station that's in the movie. So that was mm-hmm. a weird experience in and of itself. And it just, it's like a, it's very strange. Like that, that, that whole thing is like a whole strange thing. This in terms of narrative thing, we wrote a really detailed outline and then we all kind of divided things up based upon characters so that mm. the characters would have singular voices and they didn't really, like, Interesting. change. It wasn't like one person was writing a, right. uh, Jonah one way and another person was writing Jonah another way. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of split it all up and we left and we, we write on our own, but then we get back together mm. and we edit all together and we sort of project the screen on a wall <clears throat> and we read it and somebody usually is reading it and then somebody's yelling about it. you got to do <laughs> yeah. that and blah 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 and it's actually a lot of fun because it's not a lonely writing process mm-hmm. it's a very like sort of involved like I don't know it's it's I, I don't know it's actually great like uh, well it sounds like you guys treated it like a TV writer's room I guess maybe, maybe that is I've never I don't even I've never sort of experienced that so mm-hmm. I guess maybe that is yeah, what it but was. You, yeah. you stumbled on it yourself yeah, uh, yeah which is really cool yeah yeah 
Um, and because Carlisle is my brother, like, we'll get into it, you know. But in a great way, he's a really smart kid, and he, he writes great stuff. And, and David is always, like, kind of, like, sort of playing referee, you know, the good guy. Um, what kind of conversations, let's say conversations instead of arguments, did you guys get into on this script in particular? Ah, uh, let's see. Like, how... how... <clears throat> How small and specific did these disagreements get, and how kind of macro about the story did they get? You know, the main stuff was always there. It's usually, like, the tiniest thing. Yeah. It's, like, it's like usually a line or a word, even. He would not say that word. And it's so funny because, you know, we... It, we it's a learning process. So mm-hmm. it's funny is we, we're all writing something um, together again right now, which has it's been fun. Um, and I know because of this experience, and we were all there on set, like my brother came out, he actually met, uh, reconnected with a, a girl that he had met at, at summer camp when we were shooting the film, and he'd met her when he was a little kid, and I guess they'd been to summer camp as counselors one other time for a little period, but they reconnected on the movie, and now they're married, like a little while That's later, crazy. they just got married, so oh, they lived funny. together for, like, I guess we made the movie about a year and a half ago, so mm-hmm. they've been together since. Um, so that's, that's kind of really cool. Funny. Um, and that just made me lose my train of thought going down that tangent. What was I talking um, about? You guys were all on set. Oh, oh yeah. So about, everyone just about, was on set. About the collaboration. Yeah, and it's like, it's interesting the how all that stuff falls away when you're shooting. Yeah. Like, <clears throat> at that point, it's like, there's so many crazy things going on when you're shooting that all those words that were so precious have now become like, a backbone, but a backbone mm-hmm. that is just a backbone, not not the detail of the words. So constantly words are being changed, and I don't understand this, and I don't understand that, and blah, blah, blah. From an actor's viewpoint, things are constantly in flux hmm. while you're sort of searching for the truth of a scene. And, um, you know, as writers, me or my brother or David, nobody's really like stepping in and being like, I'm the writer of this. Right. This should be this way. You no were just being all, precious about yeah, it. nobody's being precious. So yeah. it's really, I think even liberated our writing a little bit more together because we know that we've been <laughs> through that experience now and we know kind of going into this next part, what's the core of what we're trying to chase right. and how can we just get that part carved out and not be so like crazy about this one little beat or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, something I liked about the movie was how is how much you do with how little dialogue you use, uh, and was that something that was found in the shooting, or was that in the script? No, yeah, I'm, I'm I tend to be a very subtextual like I just like I'm I, I particularly as a director I'm a fan of of sometimes things just being said by the eyes or by like less is more mm-hmm. and let the audience kind of sure. fill in the gap. Um, cause that's what I do a lot of the time and, and, you know, whether it's being upset about something or being super emotional about something, like as a guy, I'm always like bottling that stuff up and I'm not really expressing my words clearly or what I'm trying to say. And, and I, that's like truth, you know, and you're always searching for that sort of truth and, and things. So I think that that's why there's particular scenes that don't have that much. You know? mm-hmm. Let me ask that. Let me ask this about the, uh, about the signal specifically, and sure. we'll kind of open it up to a broader question. But uh, what in this story is interesting to you? You know, why why is this a story that only you could make? You know, I guess, and we'll see if I can articulate this because I'm always bad at explaining it. But I, 
I like making movies about something that you don't really know that that's what they're about until later. And I've always been a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, in this case, um, may, you know, whether or not this is a story about Area 51, it mm-hmm. is served up as an idea mm-hmm. later in the film. And so you don't go into the movie with all these preconceived notions mm-hmm. of what this is going to be about and how this is going to go down. Area 51 is served up as a explanation that you sort of fill in the gaps. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, this is a movie about Area 51, and I didn't even realize it. That makes total sense, or maybe it doesn't, or whatever it is. I've always liked that idea of, of like, roundabouting, like, coming in later with something that sort of explains something big. Um, and it's kind of cool. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm into Area 51, and I would love to make a movie about it, but I don't want to make a movie about Area 51. I would rather it sort of yeah. be in a roundabout way about that. And that's kind of what the end of the movie gets into too where people can be driving home and be like was that some kind of like origin story that I just watched or like what (laughs) was that you know what I mean like I like that idea where it's sort of in a roundabout way could be something else Mm -hmm. you know Um, um, are there movies like that that attracted you or that kind of put you on this path or that you saw maybe early on that you were like, I like that, I could make something like that. I mean, District 9 is kind of a movie that is about one thing but sort of about another thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it uses sort of apartheid really as like a as a sort of basis for something else that that, uh, is represented in these aliens and, you know, it's, it's sort of like a movie that, like, uses something as a big backdrop for something else entirely, yeah. you know? And and you really discover kind of what the core of the movie is later in the film, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's... Movies like that have always, like, really got me going and interested. Let's talk about your experience as a writer um, and as well as your experience as someone who wanted to make things. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you see yourself growing up? Were you a movie kid, I was, I definitely was, but I wanted, when I was a little kid, I wanted to do special effects. And then as I got older, sort of the, probably the sobering reality of how hard it is to do, get into the film industry hit me to a certain extent. And in high school, I was like, you know what? I want to be a jet pilot in the Naval (laughs) Academy. So I decided to like really get the grades and do the work to go to the Naval Academy. Really? That's where I wanted to go. And I pretty much did what I needed to do. I was about to go to get the congressional nomination and everything. And then at the last second, I decided I hated math. I wasn't going to be an engineer. And I was a much better artist. I was like, I was doing a lot of, not painting, but like charcoal drawing. I would mm-hmm. copy Chuck Close paint, uh, paintings all the time. And it was just, it was a much more of an art. That's what I enjoyed doing, you know, and making little videos on the weekends and stuff. Mini DV was what we were mm-hmm. playing with back then. And and I had interned a couple of summers in a row at Panavision, just learning about the film cameras, trying to see that stuff. And like, were you like a, a tech nerd in that way? Yeah, super tech nerd, and I can even get into that. But I decided at the last second, you know what? I don't want to go to the Naval Academy. I I don't think I'll become a jet pilot. I I my eyesight isn't the greatest, which I actually lost my glasses today. I have to figure out where they are, but. <laughs> How will um, you find them? I know. Um, I got to trace them back, figure out where they went. Um, but uh, so I decided to 
try to get into film school. I got rejected from USC. I got into UCLA, and I did two years there because you can't apply for two years. And so I did two years at UCLA. I got the interview to go to film school, Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't get in. So then I decided to just bail because, like, I wasn't going to spend two more years doing stuff I didn't want to do. At the time, Panavision had given me a job at Panavision Woolen Hills, and I was Where are you from originally? Um, well, I grew up in Santa Inez, just okay. north of Santa Barbara. Yeah. Uh, originally born in Massachusetts, moved here when I was two. Okay. And then lived in L.A. and then moved to Santa Inez in third grade. Okay. Um, so so Vision had given you this job. Yeah, like I had been interning since high school off and on. Mm-hmm. And then even when I was at UCLA, I was doing a little interning. And then they gave me a job. And then I started, I moved up to Ventura and I started going to Brooks Institute of Photography. And I was still going, I was driving every day to Panavision. Um, and then from there, I, uh, I started, uh, like, I, I left, I ended up leaving Brooks because I, they weren't going to take my general ed that I had done at UCLA. And I, I didn't want to spend all of my extra money. So, so yeah, I just left at that point. I started working full time at Panavision, living in Ventura. I still drive the same car. Like, this car has 350,000 miles on it. It's my car from high school. It's pretty crazy. That thing is a beast. Toyota 4Runner. Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so that was kind of the way I was, like, trying Mm. to figure out how to understand. Like, I didn't have a film school, but I knew if I just studied stuff long enough, I could understand the language of, like, telling movies, you know, from a technical aspect. And HD cameras had kind of just started, and all these crazy things were happening. Like, Blackmagic came out with a capture card. Mm-hmm. I had a, a G4 Mac or whatever it was, and I got the capture card under the name of Panavision. I was like, oh, I work at Panavision, and Blackmagic sent me an early card. <laughs> That's great. And I set up – it was before even eSATA drives – before SATA drives. And I had a whole SCSI raid that I drilled through the back of the computer, and I was editing, like, HD wow using an F900 as a capture device. It was insane. It was, like, <laughs> right on the cusp of all that stuff. They were yeah. just starting the first Star Wars films, and, yeah, that's right when that all started to happen. And I was a tech nerd at the time, like, mm-hmm. not because I, like, wanted to be a tech nerd, but because I was trying to understand, like, how to use these tools to make yeah. movies. That's really interesting. Um, so I came up through more of the visual way. It wasn't like I was writing a lot of stuff, studying that craft or anything, but... Uh, you know, I know what stories I kind of dig and what movies mm-hmm. I like and things like that. So, um, was there like a a keystone for you? Was there a movie that you saw when you were at an impressionable age that you were like, "Oh, this is cool. I could do this." I I mean, I don't know. I love so many things. Like, and the funny thing is, a lot of my favorite movies are like John Hughes films, like sure. Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck. Like, I love Spaceballs. A lot of my favorite movies are, like, funny movies, which is kind of weird, you know? Um, I mean, I definitely loved The Shining. I loved, like, THX. Like, a lot of weird... It's a weird mashup, you know? Like, But it's funny. Like, the people I know who are... Who John Hughes was influential for or who loved the Mel Brooks movies or whatever. Like, these are comedy writers now. Yeah. What made you go the other way? Well, and I haven't really gotten to the stage yet, and I don't know if I ever totally will, but, like... I really feel like, and I say this to people and they're kind of like, what? But I feel like some of the best characters will always have, like, in my mind, because I watch so many movies, you know, like the John Hughes stuff, mm-hmm. like whether it's Uncle Buck or, you know, any of those things. Like, I feel like there will be always a little secret 
likability of certain characters mm-hmm. from certain John Hughes films, or maybe it's just John Candy. I don't know. <laughs> stuck in some of my Either stuff, way. and and I, I always like those films. Always like made me just get the feels, man. And I just like really like that, and I want to put that into bigger bigger movies, you know, mm-hmm. and like. I we'll, we'll have to see. Like, one of my favorite films, oddly enough, that I think is just brilliant, is, like, The Rock. I think that movie is it's unbelievable. So it's amazing. <laughs> and I didn't realize all those great writers wrote on it. Like, if you look it up, I mean, really? there's, I like, it's, like, Sorkin. It's, like, what? yeah, I swear. It's, like, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. The laundry know. list of writers is sure, pretty funny. insane. <laughs> um, if I'm wrong on that, I apologize. Somebody, I said this the, the other day. Will be sure to tell you. Yeah, I said this the other day, and somebody was like, "No, no, no, that's Crimson Tide or something." But I, I'm pretty sure it's also for the Rock. Well, and if I'm wrong, you a lot of the movies me. at that time, which yeah. Crimson Tide was another one. Every right. was, there was a certain group of writers who were yeah had being their hands tapped on into them. those yeah. things. Anyways, I, I just I, I really. But yeah, there's humor and there's humanity to these things. Yeah, uh, yeah. And which translates across genres. And it makes you really kind of go on the ride and, you know, mm-hmm. enjoy it. And I, I, it, it invests you in it. Yeah, so. and that that's like even Die Hard, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like great in yeah. that sense. And and uh, we're sort of – I feel like we're, that's kind of what we're missing right now. Like we don't really have any great movies exactly in that realm. But yeah. – um, you well, know. I'll tell you, I mean, this is another thing I liked about The Signal, which was, I, I had no idea what the movie was about going in, which I think is the way to see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, maybe you should erase your brains after listening to this <laughs> podcast. Um, but the first, I would say, quarter, maybe third of the movie is just about these three characters. And I could have watched that for another 90 minutes. You know, like, these are likable characters. These are relatable characters. Uh, even, and, and, and I think that's why the stuff that happens to them works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny, because in casting them, Brenton, Olivia, Bo, at the end of the day, Mary Vernu cast it with Venus. Um, she's amazing. She does all of Darren Aronofsky's films and stuff, and she's a super, super great woman. Venus is awesome. Killed it for us. And, and they... You know, they put a lot of great actors in front of you, really talented people. And it's like, whoa, like, wow, there's a lot of talent when people are kind of like people of that kind of casting realm are throwing these people at you. And it got to a point where I was like, gosh, there's all these great people, but like, what do I really want at the end of the day? Likeability, somebody that I feel like could truthfully be my friend. And they're Mm -hmm. playing kids. They're almost playing, they should be playing versions of themselves Mm -hmm. to a certain degree. And so I started really looking at it from that viewpoint. Like, who are these kids like, and how could they be great friends and be be connected to each other, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, because that's that's, that was what was on the page, and that's what I was looking for in, in them, you know? And um, truthfully, I'd written Jonah a much sort of different way, perhaps a slightly more cliche way. Um, really? Yeah, as being, so? like, kind of a, a chubby, funny kid, you know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I realized pretty quickly, like, sometimes an actor just hits you and is, like, so intense about sure. one way they are. And I knew where the arc of Jonah's character was going to go. And I realized finally in testing both different types of people that the funny kid sometimes couldn't hit that note that he was really mm-hmm. going to – that was going to be the cornerstone of how he was later. Mm-hmm. And I realized pretty quickly that I needed to start there and then work backwards. And that's how I ended up with Bo. And Bo would crush the dramatic. Hmm. 
but his funny was so off kilter that mm-hmm. I was like... It's, it's a weird funny. Yeah. I'm like, it's not even right. But then I was like, I kind of love that. Yeah. It seems to me like he's the Gus Van Sant choice, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, I was like, I really fell in love with that. And, uh, you know, I kind of went to bat. I feel like I had to go to bat for him a little bit in some regards with some people. But sure. in the end, it was the right choice for okay. sure. And and I really had to embrace something that was entirely different from what I had written. But I will say this about each one of those kids, and they're all doing fabulous things now, which none of us even knew were going on back then. Oh, really? Um, and, and Brenton is blowing up, Olivia is blowing up, yeah. and Bo just landed a huge role in a really big movie that's just going to be huge. So it's like they all like, you know, they're doing all this because they're good people, because they're nice people. Mm-hmm. And that's Well, really... and, that, and that, you know, they may be, but it also comes across on screen. Yeah. And they can, like you say, they can play the drama. They can yeah. play the comedy. And I organized, well, in the end, it was going to have to be this way, but we shot most of the film in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then we went back to Cleveland to shoot most of the road trip. So it was organized in a way that by the time we were done with all the rest, we could go shoot the road trip, and these kids had been with each other for a month already. Yeah. So they so knew each other, and they were friends. Feel to it. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I think that's important. It's cool. I think that's missing in a lot of yeah. movies. And at the end, uh, Bo had to leave because he went to work on another film. But I took Brenton and Olivia and just, like, when the movie was done, we got on the road and I drove them to St. Louis, you know, stopping along the way, shooting and just kind of, like, doing some stuff in the car. So, like, that, that's fine. that fair, I've Brenton found that fair. That that's yeah. really funny. I told Brenton, I'm looking for swings. I need a fair. So Brenton's on his phone for, like, hours looking for a fair. We found one in Indianapolis. We just walked in and we shot it. That's and people hilarious. were like, are you guys famous? Because we're shooting. You know? We're like, no. Said, yes, absolutely. Someone asked <laughs> so, you if you're famous. Yeah. Was, Say yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, but it's so that's that really stuff fun. got to come out organically. And it was just fun because Brenton is from Australia. Olivia's from Manchester, England. And um, uh, so it was fun for them, I think, to see a little bit of the heartland kind of sure. moving through there and stuff. It was cool. It's like, it was, it's, I don't know. I, you can't, you won't, I won't always be able to do that on films, but it was a lot of fun doing it yeah. on this one. Yeah, it so. seems like, you know, when you're working on something with this kind of budget, and I mean, you did have like a month to shoot, right? It's a pretty good amount of time. Yeah, 27 days. That's pretty yep. great. Yeah. Um, but so you know, in you today's terms, freedom. that's a lot. It's like, I'm slow. I'm a really slow thinker. It's why I knew I was not going to be an engineer. Like, I could get an A in class in math. But I, I had to take all of break to get yeah it would, it would like the test would end and everyone's gone to break and I'm still in there doing it like not half until the end of break and so I knew I'm like a slow thinker but I still think I'm executed in what I do and I can do it well but I need time and so hopefully in my next film I even have more time but yeah people are shooting movies in like 18 days and 17 right. days and and a lot of these are like money making movies so it's not even like. It's willy-nilly. It's just some people are able to move and execute fast. I also think a lot of that comes with, like, the haunted house that is, like, in one location and sure. not going to move around a bunch. Yeah, a lot but... of these horror, like, straight-up horror yeah. movies kind of thing. Right, right. This um, this film required, like, yeah. some really gnarly set pieces that took time. But Sure. But it's funny. I mean, the stuff that stays with you is the stuff at the fair and you know the riding in the car and I mean the yeah. house stuff is fantastic but uh, thanks yeah um, what else was sort of discovered as you went that made its way into the story you know well 
It's funny that you said the house stuff is so like great. It's like it's so it blows my mind because that stuff was so easy to shoot in a certain respect because mm-hmm. that, that was shot just like with a little camera and some five D stuff. Mm-hmm. But I knew like it's just it's it, that was a good feeling because I knew I had to kind of fight to shoot it that way to keep yeah. it in that because it it wasn't going to fit the rest of the film. A lot of people were like, know. oh, it's not going to feel yeah. right. It's not going to feel right. I but I was like, that. look, if the motion is strong. Like, the audience is going to go for whatever ride is, is mm-hmm. happening. And I was like, I just, I knew it. I knew it would feel that way. And I'm so glad I, I like, shot it that way because it feels, it's intense, you know. Uh, but discovered along the way, I guess, you know, there's so many things that obviously change when you're shooting because, you know, you're not going to get to this location in time or this location mm-hmm. just changed or... um. There's a lot of just nitty gritty stuff that is always happening. I think as a filmmaker, like one of the crazy, like the most important things you have to accept and like learn how to like overcome is that feeling of like you're not going to get what you want, hmm. and to learn to embrace what you can get or what, and embrace it as fast as you can. When you location scout and you go, God, this is not what I was thinking. This is not what I wrote. It's never going to be the same. This is going to screw everything up. To quickly try to erase that from your brain and embrace it fast and go, wait, could this be better though? And is this going to change so much of the script that it's going to totally destroy it? Or is actually, if I just shoot it this way or shoot this, is this actually going to be better? Mm -hmm. And a lot of those choices can save your life, I feel like, because... Maybe that's me being a little overly dramatic, but you know, it's it like certainly helps you. sometimes just turning a camera and shooting one thing <laughs> is like, for instance, when Lynn Shea picks him up in that car, that was like all planned for this crazy road and it was going to be way over there mm-hmm. and we're running out of time and there's a storm over there and I'm like, we're never going to make it to that road. We're never going to get this dialogue. We're never going to get this shot. I was like, screw it. Just have her drive out in that field. And, like, people are like, you can't just have her drive out in that field. Like, it, was like, it was like, trust me. Like, in this point of the film, I think we can, you know? That's true. And, and, and then what's really interesting about that is how you discover, like, I don't know. I, I know maybe this is crazy, but I feel like you discover interesting things about, f- like, early filmmaking sometimes when you have to do something brutally simple. For example, that shot... Like, the car is driving up from way beyond, and we don't have time to get coverage. We don't have time to shoot this, like, in a proper modern film, you know? So we're stuck with a shot that, to my head, is, like, one of my favorite shots, and I realize it's almost, like, homage to, like, Italian filmmaking or something without even being purposeful. It was just, like, I needed to show them walking, so I'm tilted up. I'm Mm -hmm. low on the ground. And then you want to reveal the car driving up, so you just tilt down. Hmm. Well, you wait for him to turn and look back. So as a viewer, you're like, what's he looking at? And then the camera just tilts back, and you see the car coming up, and it's like putting all the pieces together in one quick shot. Yeah, that like, you're, yeah, that's the smallest move to tell that piece of yeah. story. Yeah, and, and sometimes and you're done. forced to find those things. And I think that early filmmaking, like because of the weight of the cameras mm-hmm. and because of How the cost of to be, exactly, yeah. they were putting a lot of stuff together. And, and that's why it's like, Without even trying, like, I think we, like, sort of paid homage to, like, a lot of early filmmaking with that shot that, like, kind of feels classic and, you know, I don't know, it's, just, it's like, one of my favorite shots. But. Well, I think there's something, too, that, you know, an audience likes to see the seams a little bit, you know? I think it it's very grounding to know that this is a made thing. As much as we can relate to the characters and live in these worlds, if it's too shiny, yeah, it takes us out of it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's sort of like you either have to be so shiny that it's transformers and it right. just like everything flows with like a new, it's a it's a game. Or yeah, it's a ride. Yeah, it's it a ride. Matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, the trick with this one was I really wanted to make a film that was sort of like authentic and realistic at the start. And I sort of had three sections. It was like authentic and realistic in the way like a movie like Like Crazy or, or even like Catfish kind of like has this like real vibe of these characters. And then the, the, the second part kind of becomes truncated and sharp and, 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 and locked off. And there's all the organic elements that we've gotten used to are now sort of missing. And then third act just goes somewhere else entirely. But, you know... Though that uh, wasn't really trying to genre bend the film at all, but I feel like those decisions early sort of ended up creating hmm. sort of a genre bending effect, which I'm going to admit I didn't know the word <laughs> genre bending before this movie, but now I do. <laughs> you were prepped by the yeah. uh, publicist to <laughs> genre bending. Yeah, so now I am I am keen to genre bending. There was uh, an interesting story point I wanted to ask you about because it was a potentially really difficult one, which is. You know, the, the premise of the story is they these two friends are driving the girlfriend of one of them to her new school. Um, and they make a decision to take a side trip. And it's that decision that I feel like sets your story in motion. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of weight on that decision right. and getting us to that decision. Yeah. How did you guys come to it how did you guys decide you know how, how you to do that? that yeah i mean there was a lot of back and forth because there was different motivations early on mm-hmm. as to how that decision was going to come about but at the core of the story it's about a kid trying to put up emotional walls and trying to distance himself from things that he think are, thinks are going to hurt him in the future and, and this relationship he feels like is going to crash in on him mm-hmm. And sort of that sort of like there's when they're sitting there talking and there's all this empty space at that cliff. It's like kind of like the future in front of him. It's a big void. He doesn't know. He's unsure. But he's trying to be more like a computer, what he's good at, more of a logical-based thinker, a yes or no thinker. Like in, in this situation, he feels like this is where he has to make a logical choice about where the future of his relationship is going to go. And that's just he's got to be hard about it. He has to be an automaton about it. And what I sort of am trying to say at the end of the film is that that sometimes the emotional choice is a stronger one and enables us to do more because you're you're basing even though it seems illogical and wasteful perhaps or sort of crazy, it it is enabling us to do things we wouldn't normally do. Like when logic is telling you, No, you could die if you do that, but mm-hmm. your emotions are like so strong that you have to do it. And and, and and I'm sort of trying to say maybe at the end of the movie that like humans are perhaps unique in that way that we can be empowered by like feelings and emotions and things like that which sometimes they lead us to do awful things but sometimes i think that they've led us to do like really amazing things and earlier in the film um he is trying to sort of find ways to distance himself from her and this whole hacking thing is a way for him to sort of like to to pretend like this isn't happening and, and to distract himself, you know? And it's not, like, clear like that, really, but that's sort of what's driving him is that he feels like, you know what, screw it. Like, screw it. Let's let's do this because this isn't what I am scared of. What I am scared of is where I'm, where I'm going with Haley. I'm not scared of any jerk-off hacker who's 
screwing with us, you know? Interesting, yeah. Um, so, in the end, that's where we ended up in terms of a decision of how that motivation was going to come around. But it took a while. We had different versions. Like, you know, you, there's a lot of back and forth. But we knew in the end the whole core of... It's a movie really told from his perspective. Mm. So, you know, some people, like, in the... Yeah, it, it's... It's really about him. It's not necessarily about Jonah or Haley or any of these other things. So it was core that at the end of the day, his decision to do something that was kind of like the wrong choice uh, was on him, you know, and was on brought around by him so that mm-hmm. he was sort of set in motion to fix it and to f- solve like what he has sort of done and, and feels yeah. like he's brought upon his friends talk about it a lot and whether or not yeah. that's executed in the film is one thing or another but uh what what is important is that without a doubt it's definitely a ride <laughs> it's kind of crazy and i feel like you're forced to get into a one way or another sure. and and you know i always tell people like there's all kinds of levels to things and this whole emotional logical thing that's that was for me to write it and that mm-hmm. was for me to kind of like feel like I had a point, you know? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, different people will get different things from it. Sure, of course. And some people will just, you know, focus on, like, this or that, and <laughs> that's what happens. Um, I'm curious about, you know, we, we've talked to writers, directors, and writers, directors, and we hear often about how, you know, the the story keeps getting told even after production is finished and then you're in pre-production and editing is another kind of writing uh, was that your experience on this, or did you not have that kind of? Uh, did you not have that much footage to play with? No, no, we had a lot. We mind. actually had quite a bit. Um, I shoot a lot of stuff. Uh, Brian Burdan cut it mm-hmm. along with Scott Chestnut, who they both worked on my first film. And uh, Brian Burdan comes from like came up through Lynch. His first film was uh, that he was an assistant on was Blue Velvet, oh, wow. and then he cut a lot of Twin Peaks. And so knowing that, you can now look at the film and go, oh. And the thing is, he does a lot of stuff that I would not necessarily ever do. But now, inherently, because he's done two of my films, they've become a part of, like, me. And he is a really wild storyteller. And he cuts things way, like, I would never expect. How so? We we haven't gotten to talk much about this kind of thing on this podcast. Well, God, he will just turn in stuff that, like, has a pace, like... I, I don't honestly like. He's very Lynchian. Like he he like he'll like truncate hmm. cuts odd, and he will pull. He will find like the weirdest things certain people do, and he'll just kind of like put them in. And and he does a lot of really. He also cut Natural Born Killers. Hmm. Um, wow. He'll do a lot of really wild stuff that like honestly, there was a shot. It's, unfortunately, it's not in the film anymore because the, the scene kind of got truncated, but. There was a shot where Nick was looking in a mirror, and then he starts to back away from it. And it took me two months to find this. But one day, I stopped Brian, and I was like, Brian, what is that shot right there? Because as he backed away, Brian is such a maestro. He's so masterful, and he knows his craft so well that he hides stuff in the film and giggles about it by himself, (laughs) like a crazy guy. And the shot was him backing away, and because he was looking in a mirror... He cut to a shot of Nick looking at himself as he was backing away. Mm-hmm. But what you didn't really realize because it was cut so fluidly, as he's backing away, Nick was still sta- standing still in the mirror shot. So, like, reality was totally getting warped for a second, but it flowed so well it was mm-hmm. invisible. You couldn't even see it. And when I caught it, I was like, But what? you knew something wasn't quite Well, it took me forever natural. to even see it. 
Really? In fact, because it flowed so well, I just it made sense in the yeah. cut, and you didn't even notice it. But finally, one day, I was like, well, Brian, I don't think he's moving there. He goes, I know, and he starts laughing, you know, <laughs> it's like, what, you crazy guy? Like, what, what are you doing? He's like, I think it's a brilliant cut. And I was like, it is a brilliant cut. Like, and so we actually kept it there forever, but unfortunately, that scene got mm-hmm. cut down. But I wonder, maybe it can make a DVD extra. I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, he he always hides a lot of strange things and and uh, just makes choices that are 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 like I don't even know how to put it. They're like so odd, but they're kind of interesting and 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 they kind of like force you to engage in the film in a way that you maybe wouldn't normally do. And I'm usually reeling him back in. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel like sure. I'm the one who's like, whoa, that's just too much. Like people won't even like you know know where to stand with that or or it's just, you know sometimes he's taking me the other way or whatever but but it has become such a process and, and I value it so much because going in clean like that like so you've been away and then you go in for your rough cut which is the worst experience always but you're seeing such a different perspective that it really enables me to be totally clean in my palette like because I have a way I think I would edit it but it's so nice to see his version and to go, God, that is so much better than what I was thinking or, you know, hey, let's actually work on this part. I really think this could be better, but I cannot believe how well you do this. Mm. And and to be to be totally honest, like there are scenes that like we almost like never touched. Like they just stayed the same because they were so great the way you did them. And then there were scenes that we completely reworked. Are there things you discover in that cut? Uh, I mean, we talked about taking things out as you shoot, but I wonder if there are aspects of story that you didn't know were there or something that you feel like you can bring forward or Yeah, definitely always things you feel like you can bring forward. And and that can be done with inserts and things like that, Mm -hmm. like the shot uh, where uh, the fish are put back into the fishbowl. Mm -hmm. Like, that was just something I wanted to hammer more as sort of like, a point that if people started to pick up on what that meant or if that was a mm-hmm. metaphor or whatever it was, that was like something that we had become sort of clean through the edit. Not clean, but it started to stand out. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to really hit it on the head in that one moment. And uh, it's not something I really plan on, but during the edit, I was like, I'm going to go shoot that shot. And, and a lot of all, most of the inserts I would shoot on my own, just like, mm-hmm. you know, um, when we had the free time or, or whatever and I would sure. bring the shots in and the assistant editor would transfer them over but like there's some pretty wild like insert shots that just took place in an office that definitely don't look like they were shot in an office you know <laughs> really yeah oh my god like, so many what? like Jono when he's seeing his for the first time uh-huh. and the close up right there uh, that was, I drew lines on the wall to look like, which was right there, like two feet away. I drew these lines on the wall to look like a vanishing point. Like it was a bigger room. Oh my and God. then, yeah, I mean, you would never know. You That's would really never weird. know, but I totally shot, I can show you footage on my phone. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, and Gunner from my first film did a lot of the insert shots for me. He was always wearing other people's, you know, stuff and, That's you know, nice. he's such a good dude and, uh, yeah, he was. He's he's secretly all throughout the film, which is pretty That's cool. Great. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, do you tend to think uh, projects ahead? Do you tend to oh, have yeah. stories oh, that yeah, you yeah, yeah. want to get to? And, oh and yeah. How do you choose what's next? That's always a tough one, but I I basically I probably have 
10 different movies in my head right now and probably 15 different characters that just will get populated in some of them mm-hmm. and shuffled around. Like, I always have a lot of characters in my head and I, they need to, like, find homes. Or, they don't have stories yet. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's almost more important that those characters get into my movies somehow before I die and then they die, you know? <laughs> so I'm always wrestling with that. But um, what, what, are the, what form do these characters take for you? They're just like people, you know. I don't know. I see them. But do they like, have, and, like, is it a personality? Is it? Yeah, they'll have even a name sometimes. Sometimes, like, um, and and I just like know them from friends or mm-hmm. from like other people. And I'm like, God, I would love to tell that guy's story and how how he's funny. And that's where the John Hughes sneaks into my stuff a lot. Is like, kind of just like like for instance, like Uncle Buck. What a great character. Like, that guy is just, like, I just love him, you know, and I feel bad for him, but he's so funny at the same time. Like, the whole circular thing that is Uncle Buck is, like, really, (laughs) it's just, like, that's a great character. And I have characters, not Uncle Buck, but I have characters that are, like, similar to people like that, you Mm -hmm. know, or... A rounded character. Yeah. There's something to hang on to there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like they're kind of like orphans right now in my mind and eventually they're going to have to find homes and we'll see what happens. But, um, right now, like I'm also, because I work with other writers and because, um, and, and it's really hard for me to read somebody else's thing and just be like, Oh, I'm going to be the right guy for that. Hmm. Um, to that said that some, too. yeah, sometimes you do read something that is so amazing. You're mm-hmm. like, Whoa, I could never have written that. But, I don't even know where that came from. Like, you know, you're pretty surprised. But for the most part, I have a hard time reading other people's writing because I'm always like, ah, I want to do this or I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And so you that's have a, a logjam of stories already. In your yeah. Opinion. And yeah. so um, the trick is like right now, for instance, I'm working on a, a project with, with my brother Carlisle and David um, and and that's in motion. And then I'm working on another a movie with a, a British writer. Um, and then I had written on the weekends before the signal just to kind of like cleanse my brain every week of pre-production. I would write Saturday and Sunday, um, a military project with David, who his mother worked for, I think United Airlines or for, um, I don't know. American Airlines, something. A commercial and, airline. Yeah, and she he would get free tickets to fly out to Albuquerque, and he would join me, and we would write this military project. <laughs> and so I have, like, kind of three scripts all in different stages of being done and uh, all really close. And I don't know which one will go next. They all have sort of different levels of budget. But uh, I'm always hoping – I feel like it's important to always kind of be ready to strike and, and hit at the right moment, and that's super, super important in this industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm always sort of trying to stay a step ahead of myself if possible. You know? It's hard, the, that selling part, that business part, and the pitching of the stories uh, is often anathema to writers and directors, too. You know? Yeah. How do you, how do you deal with that? Do you tend to write the script first and then go? That's what's happening on? now. I mean, I would love to just get it to a place where I, I'm like, here's my idea. This right. is what's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. And actually get paid for that. Now, right. with the signal, I did just go pitch it to Brian Cavanaugh Johnson. He goes, that sounds great. Write it. And then if mm-hmm. I like it, we'll make it, essentially, without saying that. Right. And so we wrote it on spec, and he dug it, and that was that. Um, but it'd be nice to be able to go into a room and just be like, here's the idea. Here's the basis. Here's where it's going to go. First, second, third act. And, you know, then they're like, okay, here's a check, you know. Mm-hmm. 
that may or may not happen. I feel I'm pretty confident that I will get to a place like that in my life where I can do that. Right. For right now, I'm writing stuff. Yeah. And the thing is, because at the end of the day, it's not even like I actually one of the ideas I know I could go into a room and get it. I could get sell the idea and mm-hmm. get that. But that means I won't have a whole lot of control or mm-hmm. leverage when the time comes. So I might as well right now. And we had the time, mm-hmm. so we decided to call out David and I. We were, like, trying to decide, do we go pitch this and try to sell this, or do we just write it? Yeah, if you sell the pitch, suddenly there are a lot of other people involved in the Oh, yeah, company. yeah. So it's like, why not just, like, let's just, yeah. we're okay right now. Let's just You'll write get it. this version that you yeah. want to do. Yeah, and maybe even try to attach somebody to it, and and now we're down that road. And, and that road is uh, a lot better road to be in yeah. than, than just having sold the idea. So, you know, I still have plenty of top ramen in my you know <laughs> cupboard right now so i'm not going to starve and uh you know it's like you know what let's just do it that way so we'll see i don't know if i'll always do it that way but um for now it's working it was interesting to hear you talk about uh like not a transformers but sort of bigger budget films uh as m- money makers as you know, ones that are supposed to make money. Right, yeah. Uh, is there a conversation that happens as you're working with a big company to that, like, no one expects the signal to make money, but it would be great if it did? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if people have that conversation. I don't think we really have that conversation. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think when you, the only time you actually put that super gnarly stamp on a movie whether it should make money or not is yeah. when you take TV ads out and you put big billboards out. Sure. That's when it should make money. <laughs> like if you're paying that kind of money to – that's more money than it took to make the film in the first place. <laughs> um, and I don't really know much about that world. Mm-hmm. I do know you know, Focus has been amazing to me. They've been actually really, really wonderful in allowing me to kind of be involved in the marketing. And they let me go cut basically the trailer I wanted. Oh, that's great. And then we won a golden, or no, excuse me, we didn't win. We got nominated for a golden trailer award. Mm-hmm. So that sort of paid off for everybody. Cool. <laughs> yeah, we're up against gravity, so we're probably not going to win that one. Best thriller, though. Um, really that is, I just feel so good about that because I love trailers. I, I freaking love trailers. Absolutely. It's my favorite thing in the world. And so to get nominated for a golden trailer award of something that I felt, you know, That's I was really heavily involved with. Tracy Pollard cuts the trailers for Focus, mm-hmm. and she's so sweet. And wonderfully creative, amazing woman. But they allowed me to just come in and like work on it, which I don't think they always allow filmmakers to do. And maybe if this was a much wider release, it would have had to have had a different trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, probably would have. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't know. On a level of a film like this, I don't know what the expectations are necessarily. Mm-hmm. You just want it to do well. You, right. you know, there is sort of a per screen average that's important, but. And do they talk to you about, like, does Focus discuss that? No, you? no, not really. I okay. just personally, like, watch it. Like, I'll read, like, Box Office sure. Mojo all the time and look at, like, what Under the Skin is doing, which did pretty well for a per-screen average. find a comparable... Yeah, The sense. Raid 2. Okay. Um, they all did, like, really well opening weekends and stuff. So I kind of know what the numbers are mm-hmm. that a per-screen average is. But they're all different. Like, our film is a little unique in a sense. It goes to 130 screens opening weekend which is kind of a rare number hmm. like usually it's six at yeah, that level it's, it's usually six big. it's like three and it's three huge yeah and it's 30 markets yeah so 130 wow. screens and 30 markets is it's it's, it's pretty 
fraud. I yeah. Mean, I don't know. I, I don't know much about it. So I, <laughs> and, uh, and do you get notes from Focus? Do you get feedback from, like, executive producers and that kind of thing? You mean when we're making the film? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At, at yeah. any point in the film. Yeah, during the writing part, actually. Really? Because they came on board uh, early on. They came, It was technically Film District at the time, which mm-hmm. became Focus. Um or the way, however it is, uh, and Leah Booman um, uh, was was kind of the head of it all, figuring it out, and she would send really great notes, really wise notes, hmm. and uh, she was really sweet about it all, and she always, like, she gives notes and, and really great ideas of how to fix things or what she feels are important, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, she's always like, but if none of these really whatever, you don't have to do it, <laughs> and it's, like, so nice to hear that, you know, but then you, you get in there and you tackle them, and you're like, this is a good point, you know, hmm. like, I, I think because what we're... What notes were those? I mean, can you think of specifics from uh, the film? Just things to help, like maybe sometimes a tonal thing. Like I remember she she really wanted the film to not be um, during the road trip. It's it's like to have some of that young love in there and, mm-hmm. and to have it not be depressing. She just wanted to make sure that the tone wasn't going to be down, you mm-hmm. know, like this whole time, which is important for the contrast of the film, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there was always, always great, wise stuff. Cause it's like, why are you attracted to these kids? And, and there is young love there, which does fluctuate. And so, you know, just a lot of wise stuff. And, and honestly, focus is, is, is smart about that stuff. And, and I guess maybe because I don't write by myself and because we do write together, we don't exactly like get the notes and be like, right. Oh my God! No, what the hell? <laughs> How like, dare they? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's 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 different. It's it's easier to. Yeah, you've already been collaborating. Yeah, so, and Tyler Davidson, okay. who uh, financed the film, like that's where the money came from. Mm-hmm. Brian Cavanaugh Jones found him. Um, he would always have a lot of notes about things, but they're all good notes too. There were just there were things about like sort of just pacing this or this or that mm-hmm. and, and and he's a smart dude and even in the editing process you know people have a lot of notes too and, and I'm not afraid of the hive mind as long as you've built a good hive around you you know what I mean <laughs> that's, that's like what's key think of it. Yeah. Um, coming up as a cinematographer I worked for on a lot of movies that I don't necessarily think that aren't great movies and as, as a cinematographer you know why you see the people who are you know kind of uh, guiding the process or whatever mm-hmm. and um so yeah, I just knew like I'd rather make a super cheap movie, but with all a bunch of like eager minds involved who are smart people, than make a a bigger movie with a bunch of idiots, you know. <laughs> well, congratulations! Uh, I, I wish you all the success. Thank you so much, man. Um, we'll wrap up by asking what we always ask, which is, what are you watching these days? What movies are getting you excited or inspired? What TV shows? What are you reading? What am I reading? Um... I just finished Dune again for the second time. I read it again for the second time. Uh, I, how, how long ago had you read it for the first time? Uh, I read it in high school, mm-hmm. so it was quite a while ago. And I haven't rewatched the film in a long time, but I want to. Um, I want to rewatch Lynch's version and just or the version mm-hmm. um, for now. Yeah, <laughs> I. Um, I just watched the other day, and I'd never seen it, but Safety Not Guaranteed, which was really great. That was a lot of fun. I had not seen that. Um, what else? I, I read Ready Player One recently, which was a ton of fun. Have you read that? I haven't read it yet. I hear God, it's great. Man, People keep recommending it. That's a lot of fun. That was a really fun book. Nice. Um, Are you a video game guy? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I, Gunner from my first film is the lead in uh, Dead Space. So we finished Dead Space while we were making uh, our film, and I would get online with him every night, and I would. It was so hot in Albuquerque. I always had like one of those uh, otter pops, you know. And <laughs> I remember playing like and eating a lot of otter pops and finishing uh, Dead Space Two with him, which is so funny because I played Isaac Clark and he was playing the other guy. But it was funny because sometimes Gunner's talking to me in my ear, and then Isaac Clark is talking to me, and I'm like, "This is really weird," That's you know. Awesome. That is so. the best way to play a video game. <laughs> the guy in it. It's so much fun, and it's he really had never funny. gone through the whole thing. And sometimes he would remember, like, he'd get a faint memory about a cutscene, and he'd be like, oh, no, I think this is, wait, oh, no, no, this is my part. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it would happen. He'd be like, oh, shit, this is, you know, he would, like, sort of remember from filming, like, this yeah. is going to be really scary. And then he'd be like, no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> and then it would be it, and we'd be like, ah. It's such a fun that's game. Awesome. So he's fun to game with. <laughs> um yeah, what what am I also playing right now? I'm trying to think. I I was playing crazy StarCraft just recently. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And I was trying to get my brother, he and I play like a two-man team. And uh, we were uh, like he's like gold and I was silver. And I was trying to get the gold. And, and I like, couldn't get my ranking up. And like literally I played so many games. And then I started playing them by myself. And I was like, I just, I'm going to get the gold and then I'm going to quit. And then the new season started and I, I was like at the top of my standings and I still didn't get the gold. It's like, like my standings were so bad. My group was so bad that it didn't even matter. And so then I like. This is a valuable Hollywood lesson. I just, yeah. Yeah. So I just like quit playing StarCraft, even though like I would step so, I would shake at my computer. I'd get so into it. Yeah. I'm a Terran player. Mainly, I go bio build. So, anyway, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> bio build. Well, thank you for being here, Will. Uh, folks should go check out the signal. They please, will enjoy it. Please, uh, Friday the thirteenth. Yes, pretty this exciting. So, yeah, stoked. To, stoked for you guys to check it out. And if you like it, you know, tweet about it. Um, even if you don't, is there like a it. hashtag? Is there a designated yeah, hashtag? Yeah, the signal. That's a good. Or one. there's are you agitated? Are the letter R, the letter okay. U, and then agitated. But the signal is pretty easy. And then I'm super swift on Twitter and Instagram. You know, super swift one word. Right. Well, I get a lot of Taylor Swift fans, so you guys sure. can all geek. That's out. why you named yourself that. <laughs> yeah, awesome obviously. Yeah, yeah. Super swift was actually the name of one of my World of Warcraft characters. Oh um, yeah, it was pretty. You're awesome. a secret nerd. Oh, dude, I was like, <laughs> are you crazy? I played two. I sold my character. I had a Moonkin. We got all the way through Sunwell Temple. You sold your character? Three thousand dollars. It's true. It's the only what? way I could quit. I sold him for three thousand dollars. He was crazy. I was like on the head of our server and we were sonar i played on Deathicus, and we were crazy i was like one of the best moonkin player i was the best moonkin on our <laughs> server so yeah i was put in with all the warlocks so they could crit and i was like i got my staff off of uh the the magador or whatever the heck the sunwell temple he was like the fifth or sixth boss oh like who would crazy and rage and yeah I, I quit playing well i sold my character i took apart my computer i gave my graphics card to my little brother and i had to cold turkey quit no way it was so intense i couldn't i played on a i found the picture yesterday i played on a recumbent bicycle to stay in shape because i would play like five hours a day it was crazy I would be two years younger doing what I'm doing now if I did not touch World of Warcraft. <laughs> Anyways, this is a fun game. Here. It's my retirement plan to go back to World <laughs> of Warcraft. Awesome. So. Fantastic. Kids, stay away from World of Warcraft. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys. Thank you. Cheers. Now leaving Nerdist.com.